Like I mentioned before, my name is Jay, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad that you've joined us this morning. We are shifting away from the series that we've been in uh, all semester long to Advent, our four-week uh, look at the first coming of Jesus. Uh, we're going to look at the significance of this event for the people of God and um, how that applies to us today. You know, one of the reasons I love Advent is it forces me to slow down. It forces me to uh, create the discipline of patience. And it's good because I am extremely impatient. If you're like me, um, you want things and you want them now. And may, maybe that is like sending a text message to someone and someone, who, whoever you're texting, doesn't respond in the amount of time that you think they need to respond. Uh, how about when you're driving? Uh, I'm going to nail all of us here, right? Uh, let's say you're behind someone at a stoplight and they don't go immediately when the light turns green. That's frustrating, right? Uh, my kids even get on to me for that. They don't even know if the light's green or red. If we're stopped for any reason, they, they'll just say, Dad, go. <laughs> it's like, well, the light's red. There's also a car in front of me, buddy. Uh, they didn't learn that from me at all, right? Like, that's to totally their nature. Um, how about when someone's driving slow in the fast lane? Uh, or texting at a stoplight or a stop sign and they're stopped and you're behind them, these things are frustrating, right? We've been conditioned to receive food abnormally fast at restaurants, haven't we? Like, what's the internal timer in your mind that, that like, it gets to a point and you're like, okay, where's my food? Is that like 10 minutes, 15? Or do you only eat at restaurants that bring you food immediately, right? God bless Tex-Mex, right? Yeah, you just sit down and food's there. Do you remember the days we would order things and it took longer than one to two days to arrive? Like, how terrible was our life? First world problems, right? We are incredibly patient, impatient people. We are generally not good at waiting. So Advent forces us to slow down, doesn't it? It forces us to, to, to pause, to look back, and to impartially uh, to remember the waiting of the people of God for the coming Messiah. Timothy Paul Jones, he's a seminary professor at Southern Seminary and a pastor, and he says this on the observance of Advent. Advent reminds me that time is far too precious to be killed, even when that time is spent looking ahead. Advent is a proclamation of the sufficiency of Christ through the discipline of waiting. So what is Advent? Advent comes from the Latin word that means coming. And historically, the church has observed this in different ways, but, but here recently, the tradition of the church is to take the four Sundays prior to Christmas and look at this first coming of Christ. So what are we doing when we observe Advent? What is the point? First, it is to focus ourselves on Jesus. We observe Advent to focus ourselves on Jesus. I love the holidays, I love them. I love everything about the holidays. From about October to December, it is just the best time of the year. Now, Halloween, like I could take it or leave it, but my kids are super fired up about it now, so that's become more of a thing in our house. But man, you flip that page to November, and I don't know what it is, I just get happy. I, I just get happier. It, it is just so good. Now, I'm not necessarily a Thanksgiving purist in that I'm gonna listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving, and I know some of you get angry about that, you probably need more, more of the love of Jesus in your life. But I started listening at the end of October this year, and it, like, it's just great. Like You guys just need to join me in that. This time of year brings intentional time with family, 
It brings good food, uh, fun music, nostalgic movies, all of these things. It brings just a fun and happy spirit about us. Trevin Wax, who's an author and vice president of research for uh, the North American Mission Board, he published an article about a week ago entitled, I Love Santa. Now, if there's anything that can get Christians worked up this time of year, it's the jolly old man, right? And the big, big white beard and the, and the big red coat. Uh, but he went for it. Now, Wax is a follower of Jesus. He's devoted his entire life to serving the church in some way. And here is just a summary of his article. Many followers of Jesus call into question whether or not we should celebrate these things, right? Like, or how much um, does uh, the holiday movies that we watch, the Christmas decor, Santa Claus himself, all of these things, do they just distract from the real meaning of Christmas? Or some are just going to reject it altogether. And so Trevin Wax says this, it seems to me that the atmosphere of Christmas should be filled with the fallout from an explosion of glorious joy. I'm going to read that again. It seems to me that the atmosphere of Christmas should be filled with the fallout from an explosion of glorious joy. He goes on, because the true meaning of the season is a message so serious, we are free to be lighthearted. Because the bread of life came down from heaven, we are free to enjoy the bounty that has multiplied for this feast. Because of Christ's incarnation, God coming in the flesh, joy has spread into all the world, rearranging everything in its path transforming pagan winter celebrations, providing a soundtrack for society, leading people, even those who don't follow Jesus, to pause and celebrate something, even if just for a day or two. What's more, he says, the Christmas season, even its commercial and secular forms, cannot shed its original connotations. Those cheerfully unrealistic Christmas movies bear witness, albeit imperfectly, to the true, true story of our world, a divine comedy if there ever was one. The songs that celebrate food, family, and friends point towards a day when homesickness will disappear. The gifts flow in the wake of a God who is the greatest giver. So going back to that quote, if we can throw it up one more time, the atmosphere of Christmas should be filled with the fallout from an explosion of glorious joy. And shouldn't that be true of our relationships? Shouldn't that be true of our homes, our families, everything about us, shouldn't that be true? Um, especially this time of year, but at all times. As followers of Jesus, this should be true of us. Now, to put all my cards out there, as, as you could probably tell, I'm with Trevin, okay? I believe we are free to celebrate in this season in a number of ways that are birthed out of this reality, that, that, that Jesus coming in the form of a baby to do what he did ought to be, be, be an explosion of glorious joy in our lives, um, uh, and just to go even further, uh, we would, in our homes, uh, we have made it clear to our children that we provide the gifts, but I want to acknowledge that I believe this is a matter of the conscience. And so if your conscience doesn't allow you to go there, then, then that's okay. I believe this is a little bit of a gray area, uh, but we're going to celebrate big and have a lot of fun in our home. And I, I would encourage you guys to do that as well. But I want to say this. Now, we say this a lot around here, that we are not drifting towards holiness, like if you just jump in the cultural stream at any point in the year, you're not going to move towards Jesus. And that is especially true this time of year. We are such a distracted culture. And that amplifies this time of year. With consumerism and all of the fun things I mentioned, they can just distract us 
from what we would say is the real meaning of Christmas. We will not drift towards looking to Jesus, um, which is why, as followers of Jesus, if we want to reflect on the birth of Jesus and his first coming, this period of waiting that the people waited for, for the Messiah, all of these things, we have to fight for it. We have to discipline ourselves to do those things. So how do we do that? How do we call the attention of our hearts to Jesus in these things while also participating in the fun things that we love to do? Now, this morning, we're going to begin a look at the book of John. We're going to continue that through Advent, and we'll, it'll also lead us into the spring. And so I want to lay a foundation for us of what John is doing in the entire book of John, what he's writing. We're going to start in actually John chapter 20. It's the second to last chapter in his book. Um, and this is the foundation for why he writes. So this is John 20, starting in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written. So he's saying everything he's written to this point, all 20 chapters up to this point, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So all that we are going to look at in the book of John, this is the foundation for it. John's purpose is to write so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God, and that if you believe in him, you'll receive life in his name. He says very clearly, Jesus did all sorts of other things. He did all sorts of other things in the presence of his disciples. And John's saying, I couldn't fit them all here. But what I've written is for this purpose, that you would see Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and believe in him and have life. Now let's go to, to chapter one, verse one. Let's zoom into the first three verses. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now I wanna observe a few things that John is doing here. First, I wanna make clear who he's talking about. He says in these verses the word multiple times. And it doesn't say it very clearly here, but if you go down a few verses later in verse 14, he makes clear that the word is Jesus. He says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So anytime you hear the word here, he's referring to Jesus. Now he begins chapter one, verse one with, in the beginning. Now, if you were to come into our home and you were to say these words, in the beginning, in the presence of our four-year-old daughter, Eden, if you just said, in the beginning, she would respond, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1. And she would smile. She would love it. We work with her on the very first verse of the entire Bible. I believe that John's audience would have done the exact same thing. They're gonna hear those words and they're gonna go back to the creation account. John is taking us back to the creation account on purpose. There are some things that he wants us to know about Jesus. First, Jesus always was. There was never a time when the word did not exist. Jesus was not created. He has always been and will always be. There was never a time when Jesus failed to exist. He always was. Number two, Jesus is God. Much could be said about the Trinitarian relationship. We see a small picture of it here. We don't see the, the Holy Spirit yet in these verses, but we see both the Father and we see the Son. And what we see here is that they are not at odds 
They're equal, yet they're distinct. Jesus is not inferior to or less than the Father. Number three, this is kind of a reiteration of what he's already said. He was in the beginning with God. Now, why is he saying what he just said? He's using different word usage, but he's, he wants us to, to reaffirm what has already been said. Jesus was not created. He was in the beginning with the Father. In fact, everything was made through Jesus. Nothing was made apart from him. We, we see this at other places in the scriptures as well. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. It's almost the exact same language. All things were created through him and for him. And Hebrews 1.2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So John takes us back to the beginning to emphasize that Jesus has always existed, that he's God in the flesh, and that creation was made through him and for him. Now, I want to explore one thing a little deeper. Why would John not just say, Jesus is God? Like, why, why this, this language of the word? Why, why not just say, Jesus is God? Boom, go into what you want to say. That makes more sense to me but he's doing something there. In the Greek, this term, the logos, was in frequent use, and it had different meanings for different groups of people. Some referred to it as the thought within a person. Uh, some referred to it as the actual words that would flow out of your mouth, the, the literal words that you were saying. Many saw it as the principle that guided the universe, that it was behind everything, uh, that gave it meaning. Some, some, uh, many saw it as that, but, but typically it was not a personal being. And some saw it as just giving order or stability to the universe. So John took this idea of logos. He rearranged it just a bit, and he gave it more meaning. He depicts Jesus as God by using it. Now, I'm going to refer to commentator Leon Morris, who briefly quotes William Temple here. He says this, The logos, alike for the Jew and for the Gentile, represents the ruling fact of the universe and represents that fact as the self-expression of God. The Jew will remember that by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, like my four-year-old daughter Eden, right? That's what the Jew was doing. The Greek will think of the rational principle of which all natural laws are particular expressions. So this is how they saw logos. But both will agree that this logos is the starting point of all things. John was using a term that with various shades of meaning was in common use everywhere. He could count on all his readers catching its essential meaning. Morris goes on. Such then is the background to John's thought, but it is not his thought itself. He had a richer, deeper, fuller idea than that of any of his predecessors. For him, the word is not a principle, but a living being and the source of life, not a personification, but a person, and that person divine. The word is nothing less than God. So we observe Advent to focus ourselves on Jesus, and we focus on Jesus because he was in the beginning, he was with God, and he is and always was God. All things were made through 
him. We also observe Advent to remember the fulfilled promises of God. God who is in the beginning and through whom all creation was made, this is the God who has come. We get glimpses of this all throughout the scriptures, but out of almost 1,200 chapters in the entire Bible, we get the first glimpse of this in chapter 3, and we've, we've read this even recently. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus is the offspring that would come to defeat Satan. We said later, um, specifically in Isaiah, the prices read uh, Isaiah 9, and we saw it there. I'm going to read from Isaiah 11, starting verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's John 1.32, right? The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his his loins. And this obviously is referring to Jesus, the Messiah that would come. These words, though, were written hundreds and hundreds of years before he actually came. Now let's consider again our impatience. I'll, I'll just say my impatience. I'll just assume you guys are not impatient. My impatience and my inability to properly view history in time that's passed. Let's just say the, av- the, the average lifespan for someone in the United States is around 75 to 80 years old. So let's just say we all live to be 80. The people of God were in Babylon captivity for 70 years, 70 years. In Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that it will be approximately 400 years before the people of God will return to the promised land and take it over, 400 years. From the giving of the law, the people of God waited somewhere around 1,000 years for the Messiah, 1,000 years from the time that the law was given. Now, is it not difficult for us to comprehend these numbers? It's so difficult to comprehend. A lifetime in captivity would be awful. A thousand years to wait for the Messiah? Generation after generation after generation, waiting, longing, dreaming of the day when the Messiah would come and the promises of God would be fulfilled, and we can't wait on hold for 15 minutes on the phone, right? Or five minutes in a drive-through line. I, sorry, I. You guys are patient, right? When we see something that appears attainable, we want it. We want it now. Like, why would I not have that if I can have it now? It's worth our time this morning to pause and think of the deep longing the people of God felt before the Messiah came, that trusted in the promises of God, but often also said, How long, O Lord? When will you come? This is the period of time leading up to the book of John, leading up to verse 1. Waiting, silence, anywhere from 400 years to 2,000 years, depending on what you're reading, waiting for the Messiah to come. And now Jesus is here. He has come. The Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for, God in the flesh, he is here. It's culminated in this moment. The groom 
has come for his bride, the God who always was, who created all things. He's now come. He stepped into his creation to make all things right. We observe Advent to remember the fulfilled promises of God, namely that Christ has come, not in power, but in humility, to reconcile his people back to himself. From the very beginning, this was God's plan. This was always the plan. We know that Jesus went to the cross, took upon your sin and mine, and conquered death by rising from the grave on the third day. And not only for ours, but all who would call on his name. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Knowing that he is a Messiah, that he was sent by the Father, and that he secured salvation for us, we observe Advent to remember the fulfilled promises of God. But we also observe Advent to look ahead and remain confident that Jesus is also going to come again. When we look to the future promises of God, we can have hope and confidence in the fulfilled promises of God because he's already done so much of what he said he was going to do. Just last week, we looked at the end times, right? And, uh, the, the reality that Jesus is going to come again one day. We kind of explored a, a little bit about uh, the different ways, the different uh, things that people hold to and the way in which Jesus will come back. And it's kind of fun to debate those things, but we can't know exactly all of those details. We just know that he will come back. But for now, we live in the already, but not yet. And I loved Jeremy's illustration last week. If you weren't here, he used the, the idea of D-Day, right? The Allied forces had, had made it to Germany, and in some way, the, the victory of war was beginning. Like they had almost achieved full victory, but had, it had not yet fully happened. So much death and uh, destruction and carnage was still ahead, but they had made it. So they had already achieved the victory in a way, but it was not yet fully secured. And for us as followers of Jesus, he has come and he has started what he will soon finish so he's already brought in part of his kingdom, but it's not yet fully here. And that is the time in which we live right now. There are several uh, verses we looked at that Jeremy looked at yes, uh, last week uh, to speak about the second coming of Jesus. I'm not gonna go through all of those, but I wanna go back to Isaiah 11. So I just read verses one through five. Let's start in verse six. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. This is what the, the new heavens and the new earth will look like. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Any of you moms out there, let your children play over cobra's holes. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is otherworldly type of stuff, right? Wolves and sheep don't go to bed together. Cows, I'm sorry, leopards and goats don't take naps together. Uh, cows and bears don't share meals together. Cows are the meal, right? They don't share meals together. Children don't play with deadly snakes. Isaiah is taking us to a time in the future when the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And when that happens, evil and darkness will be no more. Now, some interpreters see this as literal. 
where these uh, carnivorous animals will no longer eat meat. They actually will lie together with other animals. Others see this as figurative, that this is referring to nations, that aggressive nations will no longer devour other nations, or specifically the people of God. Now, in my opinion, kind of like we said last week, it's fun to speculate, you know? It's fun to kind of have those debates and talk about it. But this is what we know. Jesus will return. He will. And when he comes, the earth will be full of his knowledge. And when that happens, all things will be made right. All things will be made right. Death will be no more. Sin will be no more. You will never again shed a tear. But until then, we live in the not yet. So the pain, the hurt, the sin, and death we now experience, it's not as it will be. So coming out of this, thinking of this reality, do you believe that God's timing is always right? Are you tempted to believe that God does not care for you? Maybe he's not answering a prayer that you are praying right now, and you're like, why would God not answer this prayer? Charles Steinmetz was a well-renowned engineer in the 20th century, early 20th century. He was very small in stature. I think he was like four foot tall, but he was brilliant. And his brilliance led him to have relationships with men like Albert Einstein, Thomas Edison, and Nikola Tesla. Now, there are stories that have circulated around Steinmetz, and they've kind of become larger-than-life, legendary-type stuff, and so I don't know how many of them are accurate. I don't even know if this one's accurate, but I'm going to share it because it's awesome. So he had a relationship with Henry Ford, right? We all know Henry Ford. And at some point around 1920, his assembly line broke, and so he had engineers that were on his team that could not figure out how to solve this certain generator that had failed, So he called in Steinmetz to come and work on it. So as soon as Steinmetz comes in, he refuses any help. Like he's like, I don't want your engineers. Get them away from me. So he comes in and he only requests three things. Again, this is such, I don't know if this is real. Uh, He requests a cot, a notebook, and a pen. That's it. And then he starts jotting things down. He starts looking, he's like listening to the generator, trying to figure out what's going on, uh, writing down equations, different equations, figuring stuff out. And he does this for like two whole days just to himself, listening to things, jotting things down, taking a nap. That's all he did. And at the end of two days, he he requests a ladder. So he throws this ladder up towards this generator. He takes a piece of chalk and he marks somewhere on this generator. And he looks to the engineers that are on Ford's team and he says, remove this panel, change out such and such, do these things, put the panel back on and you're good. And sure enough, immediately, as soon as they did exactly what he said, the generator came back on. Well, this delighted Ford, right? Henry Ford is pumped because now he can produce cars again, his assembly line's working, everything's back to normal. He was pumped until he got the invoice. He received an invoice for $10,000 from Steinmetz. So $10,000 in 1920 is anywhere from $150,000 to $200,000 today. So let's just say $200,000 for Steinmetz to come in for two days. And what did he do? Like he marked with a piece of chalk on the generator. That's it. That's all he did. So Ford responds to Steinmetz and says, hey, I need you to itemize this bill. Like, what am I paying for? What, what, what is this? What is my $200,000 in today's money? What is it for? So Steinmetz sent back. He puts $1, and next to $1, he says, making a chalk mark on the generator. 
the chalk costs a dollar. $9,999 knowing where to make the mark. As followers of Jesus this morning, we can rest in the fact that he knows everything about us. And not just people in general, but each of us individually. And so if we question God's timing in our lives, we need to remember that he is the Charles Steinmetz. That is bad. It should be reversed, right? But like, he knows where to tinker in us. He knows your hurts. He knows your fears, your anxieties. He knows where you're broken. He knows. In this season of intentionally slowing down to acknowledge our waiting on God, fully trust and rest in him. Listen for what he's saying to you. He created you, he knows you, and he loves you. Now, in summary, these are the things that I'm calling us to, including myself, this is, this is what I'm calling us to this morning. Number one, slowness. Slow down. Why are we in such a hurry? Slow down. Again, Advent is a proclamation of the sufficiency of Christ through the discipline of waiting. Is Christ sufficient for you? Is he actually sufficient for you? Are you waiting on him? Remember all the waiting from the people of God in the Old Testament. Remember this. Now, how does this compare to anything you're waiting on right now? Remember this. Slow down. Number two, create a plan for Advent this season. Now, that's, that can be tricky for families. I'm just going to say, like, for, for us, now we have four kids at home. Uh, we do a weekly thing. Uh, where we get together uh, probably on a Sunday night and we're gonna do something together and then we kind of remember that throughout the week and we refer back to that because it's just really hard to do something every single day of the week. Now, you may be able to pull that off, but create some type of plan. It's not too late. It's not too late. Some plans are gonna uh, start on the fourth Sunday before Christmas, like today. Some are going to start on December 1st. But either way, just, just make a plan to observe Advent. Ask a friend what they do. Just think on these things. Uh, we posted a blog post a few weeks ago that can give you resources. On there are uh, songs and playlists you can listen to in the background, uh, devotionals, uh, either for your family or individuals, daily devotionals. There are all sorts of things. They are out there. It is not hard to find. You can Google it, but do something. Number three, I'm going to tell you to feast, to let yourself have fun. Again, reading that quote from before, the atmosphere of Christmas should be filled with the fallout from an explosion of glorious joy. Let that sink into your heart. And number four, have confidence that Jesus is coming again. God's fulfilled promises from his first coming remind us that he's faithful and he's coming again. Now, I, I just want to say that we could be a number of places with, with a room this size. There, we could be a number of places this morning. And if celebrating and observing Advent is especially hard for you this year because of circumstances in your life, I just want you to know that it is not as it always will be. Like, I'm so sorry for the pain and the suffering you're feeling right now, but Jesus will come again and he will make all things right. And I think if this is a season and period of lament for you, then I think that's okay. Find others in your community that can be with you and help you through this season, but it is not as it will be. And I hope that that is 
hope uh, filling for you this morning. Let us do these things. Let us observe Advent. Let us look to Jesus. Let us also have fun this year. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you have done what you said you would do. That you have come, that you, you are God who, is, who has always been. You were there in the very beginning of creation. You created all things. And then you came into our world. You stepped into creation to set all things right. Our sin has separated us from you, but you've made a way. You've made a way for us to be made right with God. Would you help us as a people this year to not get caught up in all of the things that are a lot of fun, apart from celebrating what you have done for us? Help us to remember and and honor Advent and celebrate and observe Advent, your first coming. Help us to wait well. Would you give us patience to wait on you? God, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.